very honored Frater BT's Esoteric Podcast. Episode 58, in which Joe Shance and I interview Robin Patterson. But first, I'd like to introduce a new segment, which I shall call... Aleph, Bet, Vet, Gimel, Dalet, Hey. A 22-part series in which I will recite the poetry of Paul Foster Case, specifically the Book of Tokens, the Hebrew letters, starting with the meditation on Aleph. I am without beginning, without end. Older than night or day, younger than the babe newborn, brighter than light, darker than darkness, beyond all things and creatures, yet fixed in the heart of everyone. From me, the shining worlds flow forth. To me, all at last return. Yet to me, neither men nor angels may draw nigh, for I am known only to myself. Ever the same is mine inmost being, absolutely one, complete, whole, perfect, always itself, eternal, infinite, ultimate, formless, indivisible, changeless. Of all existences, I am the source, the continuation, and the end. I am the germ. I am the growth, I am the decay. All things and creatures I send forth. I support them while yet they stand without. And when the dream of separation ends, I cause their return unto myself. I am the life, and the wheel of the law, and the way that leadeth to the beyond. There is none else. I am the fire of the mind, which divideth itself into the superior and inferior natures, and putteth on a robe of flesh to come down. I am the vital principle of all that is. Nothing is that does not live, and of that life I am the source. As it is written, first the stone, then the plant, then the animal, and then the man. But before the stone 
I am the fire. Distributed equally in space. Nowhere absent. Filling all. And before the fire. Hidden within it. I am the pure knowing. Whence all forms flow forth. Apart from me, there is neither wisdom, nor knowledge, nor understanding. Into every state of knowledge do I enter. Into false knowledge, as well as into true. So that I am not less the ignorance of the deluded than the wisdom of the sage. For what thou callest ignorance and folly is my pure knowing, imperfectly expressed through an uncompleted image of my divine perfection. Woe unto them who condemn these my works unfinished Behold, they who presume to judge are themselves incomplete. Through many a fiery trial of sorrow must they pass, ere the clear beauty of my wisdom may shine from out their hearts like unto a light burning in a lamp of alabaster. I am the doer of all. Nothing moveth but by my power. Mine is the healing influence flowing down from consecrated hands. Mine the venom of the adder's fang. Nothing falleth but by me, and in whatsoever riseth, mine is the power that lifteth up. My presence is the substance of all things. I am the virgin snow on mountain heights. I am the fruitful loam in valley depths. I am the gold and silver of the temple vessels. I am the mire on the sandals left by the faithful at the temple gate. See me and regard me equally in all, O Israel, and thou shalt see indeed. For seeing thus shalt thou see too that nothing is or can be my antagonist. All and in all shall I fight myself? What hath power to limit or defeat the very source of power? Know then that all thy sense of conflict 
is but the shadow play of ignorance. Wait with patience on me, thy Lord, and in my appointed time will I make clear what now is dark, and show before thee, straight and true, a path of safety. In the very place where now an abyss of terror seems to open at thy feet. I am the beginning of all beginnings, checked by neither time nor space, held by no bonds of name or form, present everywhere, centering the full perfection of mine exhaustless power. I am thy Lord, O Israel, and Lord of countless hosts. Seek me in thy holy of holies, in the heart of the true temple, on the holy mountain. Behold, I am with thee always, and I never sleep. I am the height above all heights, my descent reacheth likewise below all depths, yet am I poised forever between height and depth in perfect balance. Consider me under the aspect of Aleph. There shalt thou find both height and depth, and the path also which joineth them, for descent and return. Aleph, in truth, am I, the ox of solar fire, whose radiance lighteth all the world, whose life-breath ebbeth and floweth in creatures great and small, whose power taketh form in all the acts of men, of beasts, of plants, yea, and of things which seem inanimate as well. Aleph am I, the patient burden-bearer, strong to carry the heavy load of the manifest. Aleph am I, the eternal worker, by whose might all fields are tilled, and from whose life all seeds derive their growth and increase. Aleph am I, the first and the root, from mine unfathomable will, the universe hath its beginning. In my boundless wisdom are the types and patterns of all things. Before all worlds I was, in all worlds I am, and when worlds are but a memory, I shall be, I shall be, I shall. Special thanks to Israeli Sesame Street for providing the jingle for this new segment. Aleph, 
Our guest tonight has served as Hierophant in the Thuban Temple, is a Freemason, and an ex-Mormon. But first, let's bring in our co-host, Joe Shands. How have you been? Great. How about you? I've been doing very well. We had a little bit of a break there. We did. Things have been really kind of crazy. A good crazy, but crazy. So, Well, that's good. I, I hear you've been cantering in a Greek Orthodox church? Oh, yeah. I've been doing that for a couple years now. Um, I'm really interested in Byzantine music. And what's really cool about having such a weird hobby is that there's actually a formal process to, to kind of um, get certified or whatever you want to call it. And in theory, it's like a five-year thing. I think I'm more like on the seven-year plan. <laughs> um, but um, but it's it's really interesting that the music is all... Um, the way that the notation works, it ha- it's not structured like Western music at all. Each of the, the notes is all in relation to the last note that you sang. Hmm. Um, so if you kind of screw one note up, <laughs> you, you know, you're, kind of, you're kind of done for that section until you get... There are these little... Uh, cues later on the piece that kind of say yeah you should be at this note if you're not there you're like okay whoops interesting yeah it's 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 uh it's cool and what what i love about it too is that there's like two yeah there's like two people in my class um but uh you know at the end of it you can you basically take um a test what they do is they just give you a piece of music and you're supposed to you get a little bit of time with it and then you you um you're off you're like you go and it's uh you know, it's in front of like three people. So it's kind of like um, if you saw Flashdance back in the 80s where, mm-hmm. you know, she has to dance in front of that that like right. group of people. Um, but I don't think I'm going to... Simon like, Pegg and Paul yeah, Abdul or something. I'm not going to do the, like the headband this time. I think I'm going to, you know, wear something, um, you know, maybe a little bit more formal. Maybe not like the, um, you know, not hot pants or anything. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I don't know. Maybe they would like hot pants for <laughs> my, my test. Nice. <laughs> I like to imitate the Byzantine style when I do my Golden Dawn ceremonial stuff. Yeah, it's really it's interesting because some of the scales, um, a lot of the scales have both um, from a Western perspective, both minor and major together. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but but they're like eight eight different scales. So it's it's kind of cool. Um, and actually, what's interesting too is that, uh, and a lot of this is kind of like the Kabbalah of of um, sort of Byzantine music, if you will, but I've been told by, uh, you know, my teacher that um, those particular scales actually came from, um, like, the Eleusinian Mysteries, or if not those particular mysteries, at least uh, definitely pre-Christian stuff as well. So when you're kind of listening to that music, it actually goes back further than than, uh, Christian times, which is really interesting. Wow. Very interesting. And then you can hear it echoed, 
you know, kind of in the other direction on the timeline in Russian music, but but the Russian music seems to have other influences from further west, yes. where there's like a choralized, almost like a westernized uh, version of a Byzantine style of chanting. It's very yeah, interesting. Yeah, you know, the Russian the Russian music gets really interesting. Um, so I, I'm I, I know two people who are uh, one studying their doctorate in in both music and. Um, sort of like uh, um, religious studies and, and whatnot. And he actually performed um, some of the old, like really like the Russian uh, music that you're talking about. And it's totally different, um, but it's really pretty. It's really lovely. Yeah. And then there's um, the more arabesque music that also seems to be inspired by the Byzantine I mean, their architecture also. I mean, they basically just knocked the cross off the top of the Hagia Sophia and based the Temple of the Mount on it. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's hard because, you know, you don't have a lot of documentation on, on a lot of this stuff. I mean, you have, you, you have it now, but, um, you know, the way that it developed, it, I mean, before uh, it was really kind of a, a Kabbalistic thing where it was literally mouth to ear. And, yeah. um, you know, I, I'm glad we have documentation now, but... It would have been interesting to see how that that um, that evolved, and it's still evolving. You know, music still evolves, and and that's what's kind of interesting. Yeah. Okay, it looks like he's ready for us to bring him in. So, without further ado, let's get to that interview, shall we? Let's do it. Greetings, Fred, or welcome to the Esoteric Nerd Podcast. Hi. How are you? I'm pretty good. Yourself? Good, good. So this is my co-host, Joe Shantz. Hello. Hi, Joe. How are you? I'm pretty good. So uh, what? where are you right now? I'm in Victoria, BC, Canada. Okay. And uh, let's see, you, from what I understand, are uh, a Mason- and you also come from a Mormon background and practice Golden Dawn ceremonial magic. Yes. So are you there, still, are you, are you practicing Mormon? No, I left Mormonism when I was 30 years old. <clears throat> okay. Wow. That, that's really interesting. I mean, one of the things I've always kind of liked about the Mormons was their sense of community and like the deep community, like ties that they, they build with each other. Um, was that very painful to, to leave? It was actually, I was born and raised Mormon and it was my entire world, my belief system, my value system, the way that I perceived the world. Um, in fact, uh, that community that you're talking about was a very prominent thing in my life because we grew up very poor. And if it wasn't for the support that we got from the Mormon church, we wouldn't have eaten a lot of the time. Wow. <clears throat> so did you have to leave it in order to be uh in order to think freely i mean what what was the impetus to leave uh actually yeah it was um i did because uh you know all the the positive benefits of mormonism aside it is in my opinion very cult-like mm. and the instructions come down from the leaders at the top and they they dictate everything to you to your belief system your right. values, even what you can and can't wear, how many earrings you can have, uh, or that many piercings you can have in your ear if you're a woman. Uh, they recommend men to shave and wear white shirts. If you wear a colored shirt to church, it's sort of taboo. Mm, like wearing so, a uniform to school or something. 
Yeah, something like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, generally, it's it's recommended you wear you know what's called Sunday best. So guys will dress up in a suit and tie and white shirt, and women will wear dresses or skirts. And and like I said, if you wear a colored shirt, then it's sort of like no no kind of thing. Yeah. Not, not official doctrine, but it's it's taboo. Mm. Um, and for me to leave uh, was very painful. Very, I had to dig really deep inside myself because the things that um, I was experiencing in life and what I was learning at college at the time, I was doing a psychology degree and focusing on on English literature and philosophy as well. And for the first time in my life, I came across some really deep problems that Mormonism couldn't answer. And right. the only answers that I got from my priesthood leaders was, don't think critically. You can't do that. It's dangerous. <laughs> and I'm, I'm like, wait a second. No, 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 no. That, that can't be right. Because if God has given us this uh, faculty of thinking and reasoning, but then tells us not to use it, that doesn't, that does not compute. Yeah. And so, uh, I had this huge crisis of faith where not only were these problems going on, but my internal spiritual experiences were in contradiction to the reality that I saw outside of myself. And I had to either uh, reconcile that, which I couldn't do, or come to the possibility that everything I believed was wrong. Right. And it wasn't... It wasn't me leaving Mormonism. Uh, my crisis of faith was actually my belief in God. And, mm. you know, the belief in God is foundational for Christianity, and Christianity right. is foundational for Mormonism. And so if that initial foundation crumbles, and everything else that rests on top of it also crumbles. Yeah. And so I spent about <clears throat> eight months um, after I left Mormonism as a militant atheist and, and me being someone who studies religion my entire life, atheism was just another aspect of that study. And then I finally came around to this idea that, that atheism, while it has a lot of good merits, is ultimately, it, it can't address the, the hard problem of consciousness and, and the, the implications that it brings. And <clears throat> when I was a teenager, I had a couple of rebellious years, and during that time, that's what actually when I first started getting into the occult, I was at um, a school for uh, troubled students, and um, so the school is actually in, in, in downtown Lethbridge in southern Alberta, and mm-hmm. I would go across the street to the mall during lunch hour, and I would park myself down in the astrology section and just read and study and learn and memorize. Nice. The stuff that I, was, that I was reading. Yeah, and I got to tarot cards. I was doing tarot readings for my friends in, the, in the, the food court in the mall and all that kind of stuff. And then I had some some experiences that caused me to go back to Mormonism. But it was at my teenage years that I'd built up that, that interest in studying the occult. Mm-hmm. So after about eight months of militant atheism, I started to turn around to this that stuff that I had forgotten about but was still familiar to me. And I started looking into it. And shortly after that, I started uh, looking for Golden Dawn stuff. And the interesting thing is one of the synchronicities that that came into my life was there was a friend of mine who had just started randomly messaging me about three years before this or two years before this and was talking to me. And I thought it really strange that some random stranger would just start talking with me about religion and whatnot. And I didn't think much of it. But when at the time I had a live journal account and Mm -hmm. I posted something about Golden Dawn and he immediately responded and he and I started talking and it turns out he was a member 
of of a Golden Dawn group, and shortly after that, uh, I joined Thuban Temple. Oh, cool! And that was in two thousand nine. Nice. Yeah. Oh wow! I was just flipping through your pictures. I, I I might delete this part out just for his privacy, but I see you with my friend. Oh yes, yes. Yeah, I knew him back in the day. Oh, and mm-hmm. okay, you know all you know a lot of people that Joe and I knew back in the day. It's great. Yeah. Love him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Those guys are part of um, <clears throat> they're part of the Rastaban Temple, and they Rastaban is sort of uh, part of an expansion of Thuban Temple. Uh, we're, we're helping them set up their temple over there in Vancouver. Cool. Yeah. It was interesting. I have to tell you, like, was probably one of the most inspirational people to me in terms of like he he had the the deepest insight on, you know, the alchemy from a symbolic perspective that, that than anyone else. And I remember one time I, I ended up making just the stupid mistake of I ended up of shattering a glass and uh, as we were setting up for four seven, um, and he actually he's like, that's you know instead of like yelling at me or whatever, he actually was like, I'm going to use this as a teaching moment. And he actually had this beautiful speech about. Uh, the breaking of the glass and like the symbolism um, of it and and really used it as a teaching moment in the entire initiation. It's really beautiful. I've Very interesting. Anyone like that? Um, it's just so inspirational. Y'all probably bleep out his name until I have like a clear uh, permission from him. It'd be nice to get him and maybe on here. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, so I'm I'm kind of curious. Me, I'm curious about so many things. I want to ask you so many questions, but like, can we go back a little bit on the Mormonism uh, bit? Like, in terms of you know weaving that, leaving something that's so fun, so such a fundamental part of your life. How um, how did you kind of get through it? What was your process? Uh, well, <clears throat> um, I was very depressed for quite a long time. Um. If I would say that my decision uh, to finally come to the conclusion that Mormonism may not be true and probably isn't, well, it took probably about a couple weeks. There wasn't really a definitive moment for me, but it the the psychological milestone that I've chosen to adopt is my thirtieth birthday. I was definitively an atheist. Uh, that was in 2008, and the, I was in school at the time, and I actually had to take a medical withdrawal because I, I was so depressed and so uh, shattered. Um, and that summer, I actually came very close to suicide, and there was one moment where I threw on some nine-inch nails, and I laid down on my couch, and I clutched my pillow and I told myself the only thing that I need to do to not kill myself is to just not get up and move. And so I went to sleep that night, woke up the next day feeling marginally better, but uh, at that point things started to improve for me, and I slowly came to uh, feel like I would be okay with not having all the answers provided for me, and over time, I would come to recognize the importance of, it, of intellectual honesty and intellectual integrity. 
How has the Golden Dawn practice or, or symbolism helped? Um, Is it connected in any way? Oh, it's, yeah, they're definitely connected because there's, the at a most general level, there's this uh, searching for something larger than myself. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of religions and spiritual systems are, are great at, at tapping into that. Um, in terms of my experience as a Mormon, uh, once I got over a couple years of being bitter about it, I came to realize that it was incredibly fertile ground for preparation in occult practice and study. Hmm. Uh, in, in particular, the language of, of the King James Bible and the Book of Mormon uh, very much helped prepare me for the flowery language found within Golden Dawn rituals that's true, and in and in, in Masonic rituals as well. Mm-hmm. And not only not only that, but there is a kind of magical thinking found within Mormonism around their their priesthood, and the idea that we can do certain things with power. Um, that that was an easy transition for me into Golden Dawn, and then on top of that. There is uh, the temple rituals, which are very Masonic. And the first time that I went through the temple as a Mormon, I was very creeped out because they don't prepare you properly for that. Hmm. But when I went through Golden Dawn and Freemasonry, I felt something very familiar there. And so it, it was a good preparation for that as well. And, of course, Joseph Smith had that uh, Masonic background. Yeah, he did. Uh, I I don't know how how long that Masonic connection carried. I know that at least the first three leaders of the Mormon Church, Joseph Smith Jr., Brigham Young, and John Taylor, they were Masons. Mm-hmm. But there was a point where I don't know who it was. I think it might have been Wilford Woodruff or Lorenzo Snow who uh, distanced themselves from Freemasonry and said that Mormonism is the true Masonic order. And if we have that, then we don't need Freemasonry anymore. And then I was just thinking about how the the elements of uh, scrying and working with angels that uh, maybe aren't as much around in Freemasonry anymore. Maybe they were around when he when uh, when the three of them were practicing, or at least maybe they talked about it, or there was some side group that was practicing that stuff because it seemed like something he was already familiar with before you know the Book of Mormon started. Yeah, yeah, yeah actually. That- I was just going to say that during that whole historical period when Joseph Smith uh, received the Book of Morani, the um, the whole uh, like there were so many religions that kind of popped up in that whole uh, geographical area. It's really interesting history. Yeah, that's actually um, at least in in from what I've read, and I could be wrong here, but the the whole a bunch of religions popping up in that area is actually a Mormon narrative and. Uh, spending uh, quite a bit of time on the ex-Mormon subreddit, there are some people who actually uh, say that that's not necessarily true or is not any more true than any of the other areas around at the time. <clears throat> hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah, but I, I could be wrong, but I, I do remember reading a couple things about that. And so it, it points to a flaw in the narrative that Joseph Smith was providing in terms of, of the birth of Mormonism. Right. Um, but, but going back to what you were saying before about Joseph Smith's involvement in the occult, I, I very much believe he was an occultist. And I don't know 
necessarily if it was from his Masonic influence, uh, probably some Masons were involved in some, either some concordant bodies or other uh, deeper esoteric groups. Um, but I do know <clears throat> that uh, it's very likely that Joseph Smith was born and raised with his parents teaching him that. There's a bit of shady history with his father in terms of treasure seeking and the techniques used around that kind of thing, you know, gold digging and whatnot. And even Joseph Smith talks about in briefly in his biography about being involved in certain groups before disavowing himself from them because he was getting in trouble with the law. He was in court a number of times being charged with fraud because he would get funding from certain people on the promise that he would find them treasure and it never worked. Right. But at the same time, you can see a lot of the occult influences that have embedded themselves in the Mormon theology, particularly Kabbalah. But then anyone who spent more than a superficial amount of time studying the occult can take a look at what he did and see that he only had rudimentary understanding because he just starts to butcher a lot of it. How so? Um, <clears throat> well, if you take a look at, in Kabbalah, we talk of Abba and Ima Elohim, Heavenly mm -hmm. Father, Heavenly Mother, or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. So Joseph Smith uh, introduced the principle of a Heavenly Mother into Mormon theology, which is, is quite a diversion from, from standard Christian theology. Um, but in Judaism, it's it's pretty pretty standard, right? But kind of pre Babylonian captivity. One thing I noticed is the very first phrase in the Book of Mormon is the presence of God, which is the English translation of Shekinah, which is the feminine principle in Hebrew. Yeah, but so um, they have they have Lady God, or uh, I mean, I I'm, this is new to me. Yeah, well, the term that they use is like they refer to God as Heavenly Father, and then. Mm -hmm. uh, God's wife, heavenly mother, hmm. and then you get into a whole bunch of polygamy issues and whatnot that's neither here nor there. How do they describe heaven? <clears throat> um, well, the the culture around uh, heavenly mother is we don't talk about her because she's too sacred. Hmm. And my cynical opinion on that is that not a lot of doctrine or theology was introduced around that. So they yeah. don't have a lot of the answers. And so it's easier to just say, well, we don't talk about it because it's too sacred. Right. And then again, of course, if it's up in Binah, like there's, you know, it's this space where, you, you know, there's no language, there are no words. So, you know, why not? Yeah, they're already one yeah. with the Shekinah, so they don't need this elaborate religion system to get them in touch with it. Therefore, it's male-dominated. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, there's an interesting 99% um, Invisible, I think it is, uh, the podcast about, it is Miss Manhattan about the... Uh, the model that they used for every nude statue that was uh, erected on any of the buildings in New York, um, just about 95% of them were all this girl um, whose name is, uh, slips my mind at the moment. Audrey Munson. But, I'm going to uh, check that out. That, yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, but she was supposed to be this symbol of purity and virginity and motherhood and America, but you know, she was a nude model, so they treated her like crap. And then there was this obsessive fan that killed him, or he killed his wife, say, saying, I killed my wife so we could be together. And she was like, ew, creepy, and then ran away. But everybody, of course, the rumor was, because it was back then, that she <laughs> used her feminine wiles to drive this poor man mad. And, you know, <laughs> so she was pretty much poor the rest of her life and in a mental institution. It's a very sad story. Oh, that's so sad. Yeah. Oh. 
But I mean, it's good that she's remembered, I think. I, I, I like a lot of these podcasts that bring out the stories that really everyone ought to know. Like, why wasn't this in my history book? I guess that's what the esoteric nerd is all about. It is. Yes. So how did you, how, so, you know, how did you go from sort of like reading astrology and reading um, different things to go, like, what about the Golden Dawn sort of attracted you to it or it to you? One or the other. Well, that's, both. that's actually an interesting story. Um, <clears throat> my foundation in occult interest and, and study was it, when I was 16, 17. Um, <clears throat> then when I was, um, maybe around 2021, 20, I had another break from the Mormon church. I, I tried to go on a mission and I was down in Provo, Utah for two months, learning how to be a missionary and learning how to speak French. And I had another episode of severe depression and they ended up sending me back home, um, on a medical leave. And the the moment where I decided to not be a missionary anymore was when one of my church leaders uh, at the level above a bishop was called a stake president. He came over. Um, I had rented the movie Flubber, which is rated G. thought there's no problem. And he came over, proceeded to bawl me out about the behavior of renting a movie being unbecoming of a missionary. He's like, <laughs> do you want to be a missionary or don't you? Pull up your socks. And I was oh, so man. livid with him i looked at him looked at my name tag i took off my name tag and i threw it at him and i just stared at him and he didn't know what to say and uh it was like maybe a week after that i told him i wanted to be released and he wasn't i don't think he'd been used to dealing with with depression his his um I think the, the culture that he grew up in was you just you just get over it and that that doesn't work with someone who's got um the brain imbalance or whatever is behind uh, depression and anxiety and that kind of thing. Yeah. And then I, I basically stopped going to church cause I was so depressed. And then <clears throat> again, having a, a period of my life where I was fed up with religion and all the bullshit that comes with it. And uh, about a year or so after that, um, I was in a pretty dark place and feeling fairly rebellious. So I ended up going to chapters and I bought the Necronomicon and the Satanic Bible. Mm-hmm. Started reading through those. I think I the Satanic Bible is so hysterically funny. <laughs> I, I think I, I find it endlessly funny. I mean, yeah, it's, it's actually got some decent things, but I think it's, there are parts of it. I'm like, like the Nema thing, like reversing them. And it's like, well, the, come on, you're just being silly. <laughs> It is quite funny, and and I find it um, quite juvenile now. But at the time, I felt it made a lot of good points. Yeah, um, it, it, it actually it does. There are points in there that actually are decent, but it's sort of like some of it's like, oh come on, you know, it's just him being the the theatric, theatrical, you know, magician with the, the you know the the devil beard or whatever. I thought it whatever. Hmm. I yeah, read it very myself. much so. <laughs> Um, it was, but it was actually the Necronomicon. Uh, the, there's the the essay in the beginning, and they mentioned that the techniques that they were using weren't effective against the powers and entities of the Necronomicon. Now, I treat the Necronomicon as just a, a piece of of literature. It's interesting to read, but I don't really give it any due credit. But I do remember the essay mentioning <clears throat> that it was the Golden Dawn techniques that weren't that weren't working, and for whatever reason. 
that name Golden Dawn just jumped out of the page at me and I made it a point to put it in the back of my brain and remember it. Hmm. So then shortly after that, uh, I made a decision to move out from Lethbridge to Victoria and uh, this started going back to school, getting my life in order and ironically was actually the, some of the principles in the Satanic Bible that caused me to get my life in order. It's like, well, quit feeling sorry for yourself and, and take responsibility for yourself and so that's what I started to do. Yeah, I and saw that meme I remember... yesterday. <clears throat> Sorry. What's that? Oh, I saw I saw that on a meme yesterday. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Clint Eastwood looking so, pissed off. Oh, yeah. So it was I still wasn't uh, an active Mormon when I moved to Victoria. Um and so part of there was a series of events in my life that sort of pushed me into um going back to school and going back to church, but shortly before that, <clears throat> when I was first in Victoria, I started using the community internet access to look up Golden Dawn temples. Mm-hmm. And I remember I didn't know anything about Golden Dawn or anything like that, so I didn't know who was what or where or whatever. But I remember coming across some Golden Dawn group down in the central states, and if you want to be a member, here's what you do. So I uh, had or printed off an application form and then sent off my application form with a self-addressed envelope. And shortly after that, my life turned to chaos, but that chaos would ultimately be <clears throat> the the foundation upon it was the catalyst for change in my life. And so then shortly after that, I started being a Mormon again, uh, finished my high school uh, and then did a year at, at college and then that's when I had my crisis of faith and then a year after that I I, the, I, I want to say I found the Golden Dawn Temple but realistically it found me and it's been a very prominent part of my life ever since then and I feel like I've made some very important contributions to, to Thuban Temple nice. uh, most particularly uh, we, with, with respect to our knowledge lectures we were basically using the Regardi book and I took a look at it and said, well, this is confusing. This isn't good enough. So I decided to do the knowledge lectures properly in Word document. And those are what we use now mm-hmm. for our for our uh, study material. And it was interesting because um, I would finish the knowledge lecture, uh, pass it off to, to Frater Yud Shin Yud. Uh, he approved it or it issued corrections. And then when it was done, I would go to our pre-administrator at the time, hand him the knowledge lecture and say, here's how you're marking me, and then proceed to write my test. Hmm. So it was it was by doing up the knowledge lectures in a Word document that I became very familiar with the Golden Dawn material. Oh, okay. Then you were able to do your test very yeah. easy. That makes sense. Yeah, very easily. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, although I, I have to say that those, the knowledge lectures that are from the, um, the, the, the big black book or the black brick depending on on your your point of view the um you know they're so confusing and they're so strange and you almost wondered you know did they did they have a grasp of what they were really doing what they were looking at because some of the stuff you when you get into i think it's like practicus you're like well you're the things you're describing like do you realize that this is what you're really showing and and you're like you're getting into yeah it's like well those things do exist but but I wondered how much of a grasp they even had of, of some of that stuff. Cause it's like, well, you're okay. Now you're making reference to pre, you know, pre Zohar 
Kabbalah, which is fine, but, you know, do you really know this given that you're like, you know, you'd throw in the tatwas, you know, in some random place. Right. Um, so it's good. I think it's awesome that you, I think every order really has to, you know, at some point really look at the knowledge lectures. Um, and it's great that you were kind of, it sounds like you were an inspiration for that, for, for your group. You really kind of have to look at them and be like, okay, well, what, what do we do with this? Um, you know, and then you go, you've got a group like the OSOGD is like, okay, let's just, let's redact everything and change everything. And I think that, that you kind of have to find that balance that, that really works for you. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I think part of uh, the reason why I ended up doing that is because my son signs Aries. And so there's that sort of initiative taking quality to the way that I approach things. Proactivity. Nice. Yeah. That, that's great. <clears throat> Well, also, I think part of it is just the making sense of it all. I remember when when I first got the material, and I'm like, "You really wanted me to memorize the Hebrew alphabet? Really, really? <laughs> yep, yep." Oh, and then getting to the names when you get, you know, because all the names sound kind of normal for for the, the 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 planets and all that stuff. And you're like, when you get to the intelligence of the moon, you're like. Okay, now you're just being funny. Like now you're 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 messing with me. This is some sort of like, oh, is he gonna say? Is he gonna say that? Yeah, exactly. And change not the barbaric names of your location. Yeah, for they are names divine, and hold therein power ineffable. Labor thou around the strafalos of Hecate. Oh, sorry, getting caught. So how about um, Freemasonry? I mean, there's a lot of different kinds of lodges, and some of them are a little bit more, you know, lean toward the bake sales, and others lean more toward, you know, academia. How about the the one that that you're connected to? Um, <clears throat> yeah, it's. I'm not sure if my lodge has a particular quality to it. Mm-hmm. Um, there. It's it's a pretty healthy lodge. Like I know some lodges are are in danger of shutting down because their membership uh, numbers are dwindling, or they don't put a lot of guys through degrees. But my lodge in particular is pretty good. We put quite a few people through every year, and we we also have the benefit of having a fair number of young guys in there as well, which is not something found in every lodge. <clears throat> um, I've noticed like everyone every mason joins Freemasonry for for their own reasons. Some people join it for business connections. Some people are just looking for a social club. Some people want to augment their, their spirituality or religious experiences. And some people are, are looking for uh, an introduction to esotericism. And that the latter one is more my interest. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> and it was I, – I knew that I wanted to become a Freemason back in like 2001. I read a book called The Hiram Key by mm. uh, Christopher Knight and Robert Lomas. Yeah. Uh, but the time to join wasn't right. Right. Um, but by the time I was doing school and in in college and university, I was like, okay, now's the time. But the the interesting thing is the time for me when I first started to apply and when I actually joined was a period of about two years. So when I first uh, petitioned to join, I was still a Mormon, <clears throat> and there's something something had got lost along the way in terms of my petition and I had to repetition a year later, but by that point in time I had already experienced a crisis of faith Mm -hmm. and lost my belief in God. 
So when the investigative committee came to see me, I was like, well, you know, you guys only have one requirement for, or three requirements for, for membership, one of them being a belief in a supreme being. And I can honestly say that I, I, I won't have that. So my application got rejected, right? which was uh, disheartening but understandable. Uh, you know, I'm of the firm opinion that any club has the right to determine their their rules for for membership. So I, I didn't resent them in any way. And then, uh, you know, shortly after that, I changed my position on God and my belief in, in such things. And so I repetitioned to join the same lodge, which I was told would actually look look good to do that. And uh, I got accepted. Uh, but by that time, by the time I became um, an entered apprentice, I had already gone through most of the Golden Dawn degrees. So I already had a really good understanding of what to expect. Right. And so, you know, sitting sitting in the preparation room, dressed in a strange outfit, and hearing the the masons make jokes about goats and all this other kinds of stuff, I'm trying to make trying to make the the newbies nervous. I was mm-hmm. just chuckling along. So they had that. the they had the preparation room with the skull and the vitriol written and everything old school. Uh, no, not oh, not, not my lodge. Uh, not that I know tradition. that that's. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, I know that's a tradition in some lodges, um, but I was already familiar with those concepts. And so yeah. when I was in the preparation room, in my own mind, I was I was contemplating my own mortality. Yeah. But I, 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 as far as I can remember, we didn't have a skull in the preparation room. It was just mostly the area to get dressed. Now, would you say that um, – was it your definition of God that changed or did you stop believing in God and then start believing in God again? Oh, I stopped. I was a militant atheist. It wasn't that I my position was I don't believe in God. My right. position was there is no God, and it's stupid to believe such. But when you started believing in God again, was it exactly the same God as it was before you stopped? Does that no, make sense? No, not at all. Okay, I, yeah, I, I'd, I'd love to hear, yeah. hear if you want to elaborate on that. What, what was the difference well, between God before and after the atheist period? God before was exactly as Mormonism defined, uh, Heavenly Father, Son, Jesus Christ, the Holy Ghost, married to Heavenly Mother, occupies a body of flesh and bone, as the Mormons say, and that the the whole idea of apotheosis is embedded within Mormon theology. So if I'm a good little Mormon boy and, and do all the things that require me, when I get to heaven or the celestial kingdom, I will become my own god mm. and populate my own planets with, with my own children. Okay, that's apotheosis. So you don't become one with God, yeah. you become another god and make your own universe. Yes. They have that in yes. Gardneri and Wicca. I didn't realize Mormons and Gardneri and Wicca had that in common. Oh, yeah, I didn't know that about Gardnerian Wicca. It's interesting, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, and oddly enough, that that's actually one of the, uh, you know, if... if from what I understand from people I know, um, people who are involved in the temple is set. They believe that the left hand path ultimately leads you to do that as well. That, it, that it's not, you're not ultimately assumed by God. You are deliberately breaking apart from the known universe and creating your own mitosis. Or something. Yep. Yeah. Then that's a, that's a bit of, um, in my opinion, a bit of a corruption of what the left hand path originally meant uh, my understanding with with eastern um, philosophies and, and mystical systems is the left hand path is actually the uh, deification of the feminine 
There's the, the left-hand path in Tantra is slightly different from the left-hand path in uh, the Western occult. But I think that uh, it was – yeah, you're absolutely right that it was a distortion and a perversion of an understanding. The reason why they call it the left-hand path um, was because they were drawing from the concept in Tantra. Right. Very interesting. Yep. So what would, what would that look like if somebody were realizing the, uh, the completion of the left-hand path in that context, would you say? Um, I'm not sure. There's I no right answer. I just, uh, oh, well, yeah, you were saying that, um, that that's a, no, damn it. There is a right answer. <laughs> yeah, no, there, yeah. What is it? No, no. I, I just, I, it's I, three. I like to, the I like answer's to... three point, point seven. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess what's, what's the question? Um, you were talking about the left-hand path in Tantra or in the East? Yes. So that's the realization of the feminine. The, the the deification of the feminine and then the right hand path would be the deification of the masculine. Very interesting. Now, of course, the left hand path refers to the pillar on the right side of the body in the Kabbalah or in in Hermetic Kabbalah, which is the black pillar, which is the feminine pillar. Right. So that that right checks out. And then the right hand path. Of course, we're always talking about the middle pillar. That you know, it's all about the middle way. So if you're going toward the the mercy pillar more so than the central pillar or the severe pillar that's still just as unbalanced. It's probably even more insidious because then you have someone who in the name of love and, and all of that good, you know, sort of sticky Jupiter, I'm so generous, you owe me kind of, uh, kind of unbalanced as opposed to something you can just say, oh, that guy's an asshole and then walk away from when someone's imbalanced toward the, the severe pillar. That's interesting. Yeah, pretty much. And like, um, I've I've been saying for a while now that the that the shadow side of of the uh, merciful or or righteous is is intolerance and piety, mm. and we see that a lot with people who you know embrace love or allegedly embrace love and kindness as as their primary modalities in life. That's interesting. So, like, as in, they won't tolerate anyone who isn't all love and fairies. Yeah, exactly. And, and we only need to look to the established churches to see that kind of intolerance and in practice. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen it in the order that I came from, too, where if uh, if there was a candidate that was getting to the point where they were being considered for invitation into the second order, and then they asked any questions, and if the person answered honestly in a way that happened to be anti-establishment or to contest the established status quo accepted you know, responses that were written down 130 years ago in the knowledge lectures, then they were denied admission. And it's just, wow, what are you doing? It's like Stepford, Stepford second order only, you know. Like how, well, how did I get second it? order? <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, and and another example of that, and, and more contextualizing it in the nature of this podcast. You know, back in two thousand eight, Proposition Eight was a huge thing in California, and the Mormon right. Church was a huge, yeah, huge factor. Yeah, that's in a time that. to lose faith. Yeah, huh. yeah. And what's what's interesting now is. From that moment up until now, the Mormon Church has been bleeding members, and the church leaders are sitting there scratching their heads Wondering trying why. to figure out oh. why, but they refuse to look at the most obvious answer. Yeah. Yeah, when Builders of the Adidam took that position, it only took them seven years to realize that they should really backpedal a bit and you know apologize to everybody and not. Yeah, I, I like the Episcopals for just 
openly at this point i guess it took a few steps but i went to an episcopal service the other day and there was a woman breastfeeding in the front row and the guy was talking about being pro-gay marriage and stuff like that i'm like this is a church oh my god this is that's really cool but you know you wouldn't see that in a catholic church but francis is definitely a step up from that guy ratzinger oh god yes you know and i i kind of think that that there you know i've been to a lot of different um groups and churches and and whatever I, I've, I'm kind of coming to this place. I kind of think that a lot of it also depends on the individual community. Like you can find Catholic churches that are really kind of cool and open. I think you can find some that are, you know, not like right. that at all. And more, way more what you would call conservative where, you know, I really would feel personally uncomfortable and some that I probably would feel more comfortable. And so I think it's so much, so much depends on the community and the, the, the you know the lodge as it were like the individual lodge yeah and there's an interesting phenomenon it seems where when people are born into a group or cult or whatever we want to call it a community um there's a different set of issues than someone who's not like for example i was raised practicing a tibetan buddhist you know work and then in my 20s i decided to actively seek out membership in a orthodox catholic church and of course people who were raised catholic were scratching their heads going uh did, did i not tell you about the nuns growing up you know like they they have all these negative experiences and they had to break out of it and into something else um similarly uh there's a guy that i know who i interviewed in an earlier episode I don't know if you've heard it already, uh, Jonah, he, uh, he became Mormon on purpose uh, after having practiced Golden Dawn for a long time, and a series of signs led him to realize that that was the community that was calling to him, and he, he seems to really like, you know, dressing up in his Sunday best to, to go to church, and, and uh, but, you know, for him, it wasn't something that was forced on him as a kid, as something that he had to believe. He's approaching it more like, ooh, this is a path that I think might be right for me, might be a good fit. It's interesting. Huh. That is interesting because um, <clears throat> I, I can I can understand the appeal that Mormonism can have to converts, but having grown up around it, I, I can tell you firsthand it's a very suffocating uh, paradigm intellectually and spiritually. Yeah. Like I'm actually of the of the position, you know, one of the main arguments from Mormons is, well, you know, it teaches a lot of good values. Well, actually, I think it's a very nefarious institution and robs someone of their their own God-given birthright and sovereignty. Yeah. Not to mention they own half of Las Vegas, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's interesting when shady shady things go on in the name of good. It's like, well, yeah, we we do take all these uh, millions of dollars from compulsive gamblers, but we we spend it on good causes like trying to block gay marriage. It's like, oh, you know, you're not yeah. winning any uh, <laughs> supporters over there. <laughs> but, I, I'd actually be surprised if the Mormon Church was still around in thirty years. Yeah. Maybe yeah, maybe um, it'll might have to change form because all those buildings are still there. So someone's going to have to be doing something in there, unless they're going to just turn them all into museums or something. Yeah, well, it, what's really interesting is is the the numbers of of the membership that are being reported versus the numbers that are actively active and uh, still identify as Mormons. Hmm. The the Mormon Church. Uh, constantly publishes numbers that their membership is increasing. I think they're just over 15 million now. But the statistics show that, like, they have every Sunday, they have people going around counting the number of people there. 
And on average, you get about a third of the reported numbers being active, regular Mormons. Hmm. So, you know, 15 million divided by three works out to be about 5 million. But statistically speaking, there are some people that only show up to church once a month or whatever else or who are what's called name-only Mormons or NOM. And so the, the there's been some statisticians in the ex-Mormon subreddit who have crunched the numbers and they estimate that's probably closer to 3 million active Mormons. Hmm. And so what, what you combine that, that number with the way that the church is bleeding membership and the number of people that keep leaving is just keeps going up and up and up because the Mormon church keeps digging it in its heels on position that as far as I'm concerned, they're on the morally wrong side of, right. and it's just going to keep happening. And this, this internet thing is, is huge and they can't stop it. And there's this huge thing that came out a year or two ago called letter to a CES director, which is just basically 10 nails in the coffin of the Mormon church hmm. because he, he, uses mostly church materials to address the issues that he has. And there have been thousands and thousands of people that have had their eyes open because of this. And it's just, it's just getting more exposure, more exposure. And, you know, it's 30 years from now, unless they change their position on, on social issues, they're not going to have much of a membership base left because, um, even outside of Mormonism, the, the, the phenomenon that we see with millennials and younger is um, that people identifying themselves as spiritual, not religious, and basically turning their backs on, on the institutions of their parents. Right. Well, changing their doctrine isn't something unfamiliar to the Mormons. It's not, and that's what has me chuckling. That's another problem. Because, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, because in, in 1978, story. I think about three months after I was born, uh, they, they reversed their position on the blacks and the priesthood. Yeah. And Finally. even a year before that, oh, God. yeah, even even a year before that, some of the, there was there was an essay or something released by one of the, the higher ups of the church that says we will not, you know, this is the way God wills it and blah 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 blah. You know, a year later now now, oh look, God God changed his mind, and so I'm watching, comparing that, watching the the leaders of the Mormon Church now digging in their heels, saying this is the way it will always be, we will not change it, and then you know seeing the social pressure that's building up around them. And seeing the way that they handle the blacks and the priesthood and, and several other things, and like it's it's just you know you guys can say this all you want, but sooner or later you're either going to change your position or you're going to die. Right. It, it's that simple. But you know, in some ways, I would kind of feel like you know it's kind of gross to change your position on. I mean, if your original position was well, you know, blacks really shouldn't be priests because there's something really wrong here and like that would just make our congregation look kind of weird. Um, you know, if that's your original position, like if someone changed, they're like, Oh, you know what? We changed our mind. We'll welcome blacks. It's like, you know, if I were black, I don't know if I'd really want to go there. You know, cause it's like, well, yay. You know? yeah. I mean, it's just kind of gross, but whatever, you know, to yeah, each their like, own. There's this like, fancy club, you know, the Jonathan club is, you know, rich Republicans where they go to, you know, in a little gated, gated community. And they were around since 19 teens, you know, twenties, something like that. 1976, they admitted a Jew. 
It's around the yeah, same time. Like the one Jew. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll allow one Jew. I like, think that was around the it. same time that the Vatican admitted that the Earth goes around the sun, wasn't it? 1978, <laughs> and apologized to Joan of Arc. And... It's like, I mean, it's I'm like sure it's kind of like, like you'll always have the people one. that are like, right, right, exactly. And I'm sure that the one guy's sort of like having a laugh. Like, they're like, oh, yeah, I'm going to join the club. And, he, and they admit, and he's like, <laughs> all right, I get like, whatever. But, you know, like, it's just. I don't know. I'm yeah. dubious. Yeah. Yeah, and there's there's something um, interesting around that whole thing because um, it was Brigham Young was very vocal about uh, blacks not having the priesthood. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can find quotes by him saying that uh, the Lord will never allow the blacks to hold the priesthood because of this, this, and this, and this, and if a, if a if a person marries a black, then amen to his priesthood power and all this kinds of stuff. Huh. Now, is As, was he? Do you think drawing from Darwin or just that that whole racist notion of uh, what was it? Noah's son uncovering his nakedness was it? Yeah, well, that's part of it. But I think the the more realistic explanation would simply be that it, they were products of their of their time and culture. Yeah. Um. Not, not that it makes it right, but just, you know, in the same way that s- some people in our parents' generation are still homophobic. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Well, that's kind of, I mean, that, that kind of puts a, you know, because it's people and generations change more quickly than institutions do. And then the really old institutions like the Catholic Church seem to be the slowest to change. And... The Mormon Church has only been around for 150 years or so, so they change a little more quickly. But uh, I don't know. I mean, that architecture—it's just I, so something I like about it. I, I I can't quite put my finger on it. That you know, there's certain key things that I, of course, disagree with about uh, the political you know position that the Mormons are taking. And I, I of course, there's some theological elements that are just silly, but. Uh, yeah. I'm always I always find myself in the de- in in the position of defending the Mormon Church, even though of course I'm not <laughs> Mormon. But you know, there was one point where the Peruvians, a lot of the Peruvians, were uh, losing their faith because someone did a test and found out that there was no Hebrew blood in their in their DNA or Hebrew DNA in their blood. And uh, so so I had one of my dad's articles about how the, it turns out that there were domesticated horses, according to the cave drawings, at around the time that the Book of Mormon says there was in the Book of Mormon. So I had that translated into Spanish to help ease the the faith of the people who had just been you – know, I, I, I don't know why. I just uh, – I don't know what what vested interest I have in in keeping Mormons from losing faith, but uh, you know it's just I mean I guess just preventing preventing the kind of depression that you went through. I mean they don't necessarily have a, a Thuban order down in Peru you know, <clears throat> or some alternative. Yeah, but that actually brings up a um, a really important topic that hits close to home with me um, because uh, when I first left Mormonism I was very very critical of it and almost like took up a, a champion cause and I got to get as many people out as, as I can. Mm-hmm. And after doing some, some contemplation, you know, I, I told myself, you know, leaving Mormonism was one of the most difficult experiences in my life. I barely survived. I, I, I cannot be the cause of that to another person. So I, I set a, a boundary for myself that I do not go out of my way to talk about, mormonism with other people yeah but if they approach me and ask questions then it's fair game yeah like if i see if i see the missionaries on the street 
I won't approach them. Right. But if they approach me, which they often do, you know, gloves off. All right, let's talk about this. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, you know, I, I, the funniest thing I, I think I've, I've seen, and I, I feel like I know what the conversation was in the room, and I don't know how how people figure out where where they're going to send the, the, the missionaries and stuff. But I remember um, I kind of got a bit stranded in a part of Brooklyn, which I had never even known about, but it was almost like this Chinatown, but it was like a newer Chinatown um, in Brooklyn uh, between sort of like where you go from Manhattan to Coney Island. So like really like smack dab in Brooklyn mm-hmm. and like total, like total Chinatown. Like no one speaks any English. All the street signs are in Chinese and I see two Mormons there that look, look like more sort of, I'm like, really? Like, what are you, they, they don't speak any English. What are you going to possibly talk about? <laughs> and I know they probably like someone sitting back saying, you know, the Chinese have a really good sense of community. Let's go after them. Oh. <laughs> Just sent those guys there <laughs> and put them on a street corner. And I'm like, I remember that we kind of like, we're looking at each other just like, Okay. I'm just looking at you from the theatrics of it. Like we're not going to have a conversation. <laughs> <laughs> That's fun. But I felt sorry yeah. for them. The um, having been on the other side of, of the missionary name tag, I, you know, I can, I can speak to the, the probability that uh, a lot of Asians are actually targeted because their sense of community makes them more susceptible to, to wanting to belong to something and so the missionaries will go out of the way to talk to them because they have a, a higher chance of conversion there, wow. possibly. Huh. Interesting. Which is, which is, I, I think it's highly unethical because a, a lot of, of these international students, they, they don't want to say no because they're trying to be polite. But they don't understand that these Mormon missionaries can be nice but incredibly aggressive and they won't leave them alone until they get a commitment. Yeah, and that's that's where I almost want to break my boundary and go over there and start having a conversation just to let some some innocent person who doesn't know better off the hook. Yeah, yeah, that's a tough because call. I mean, especially on the other side of the the high sort of the hiris, you know, having gone through the neophyte initiation simultaneously, you've got to protect the innocent from those who seek to harm them and manipulate them to their own greed or lust, and at the same time not to criticize or cast criticism or curses upon the form of religion professed by another. How do you do both? That's a very fine line, <laughs> you know? You know, and, right. and part of it too is that, you know, and having been in a limit order as well, where it's sort of like, you know, and, uh, at some point you have to like take responsibility for your own will. You know, you're given free will and you must exercise it to whatever degree it is. And, you know, if that's going to be your life journey for a little bit and, and you're going to be recruited into this, this thing, you know, maybe there, there's part of it that you can take out. I mean, look, you know, I was part of the, 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 the same cult that Ed was. And, you know, if I were to go back and change things, I, I wouldn't because um, there are things that there's, there's behavior that I did that I would change, but yeah. I wouldn't change going in there because um, I learned a lot from it. So I don't know. It's hard to say. I feel it's it. it you do feel torn because you're like, you know, having having the strength of going through all that, you look at someone else, you're like, Oh my God, can I save that person? But, yeah. but it's, it's hard. Yeah. I know what you mean. Yeah. It, it brings up an ethical dilemma because, uh, you know, I, I feel very importantly that everyone's spiritual path is their own. But at the same time, I see religions like Mormonism as, as a kind of social virus 
and the missionaries are, are simply they're they're brainwashed and programmed to do nothing but spread that social virus. But you know, and and I wonder about like you know thinking about the the order that Ed and I were in. We were kind of programmed to put these little flyers, flyers and books. books, you know, and we were <laughs> oh. doing really the same things. We were proselytizing, you know, our specific order, and it's like. You know, and, and, and you, I mean, I'm sure the language about like going out and doing that. Planting is the same. seeds like, oh, of light. Spreading the light. Yeah, exactly. It reminds me of, like I've seen videos of, of, you know, Nature Planet or whatever the BBC thing is, where these caterpillars will get... Uh, infected with this parasite and the parasite will take over the brain cause the caterpillars to go to the top of the plants and stay there till they get eaten oh interesting there's another one that's a a fungus that goes into the ant brain and makes it climb up to the top in order for the spores to reach as far as possible when the ant brain explodes yes exactly (laughs) and so what we see is this this social spreading at the expense of the individual Right. Down to the to the uniform and everything. And hello, my name is Jesus Christ. By the way, that's yep. why I like the exploding ant brains is why I like New York so much, because, you know, I can imagine me going, oh, the great outdoors and like stretching and like sort <laughs> of like ant brains like, you know, covers me. So what was it? Emo Phillips said, sometimes I miss New York City so much I put urine in my humidifier. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, there's that. There's the other side, too. Fair enough. <laughs> But at least it's familiar. You know what it is. Oh, that's oboe urine. I know that smell. (laughs) (laughs) So I have three questions. There's specific questions um, that have come to mind at various points. The first question is, when you were doing tarot readings at the the, the food court in the mall when you were a teenager, was that the Rider Waite deck? Uh, No, actually. At that time, I had two decks. Mm -hmm. Um... I had the the Dragon Tarot deck by Tyson. Nice. And mm-hmm. I had the uh, Thoth deck. Oh, cool. Okay. And I have to ask, yeah, like, I, I was, I was, beg- I was dying to know when you were telling the story. Were you afraid you were going to get caught? Because you were still kind of, you know, you're you're living with your parents and stuff. I would think by that time, and you were still kind of a Mormon, but you're playing around with other things. Were, were you afraid of getting caught? And did other people kind of know that? Oh, he's playing with the, you know, the devil's tools or whatever. Um, yes and no. Um, the relationship that I had with my mom, like my dad had been out of the picture since I was 15 months old. So it was just my mom and my sister. And the relationship that I had with my mom was such that I wasn't afraid to speak my mind with her, uh, in, in terms of how often we argued, like me and my sister were, were a year and two days apart. So me and my sister going through adolescence at the same time, my mom was going through menopause. So our home was oh. a war zone, oh, and I, I, I did not yeah. hesitate to tell her to fuck off and go to hell. Yeah. Right. But at the same time, I didn't necessarily go out of my way to let her know that I was into all this stuff. I wasn't shy about it around my friends; they all knew me. But I didn't bring it up around my mom, and my mom wasn't part of my social crowd, so she didn't necessarily know. Right. That makes sense. So, second question. Um, the night you didn't commit suicide, what album was it? Halo Four. Uh, Pretty Hate Machine. Ah, oh, cool. Halo Two is it? Is it that's Halo Two, right? 
uh, Pretty Hate Machine's one of the best albums oh, yeah. of all time. Oh. Absolutely. In, in my opinion, Pretty Hate Machine is the best Nine Inch Nails album ever. I was amazed to find out and inspired to find out that he just did that all sitting at his computer with a keyboard next to him. <laughs> yep. It's amazed. I mean, that's that. That is like that, and a few other factors are, the, are probably the reason why I sit out messing around with audio software as much as I do. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, Golden Dawn. I don't know. I, I, I forget what my actual question was or was going to be. Oh yeah, if you don't mind uh, my asking, what grade are you up to? Um. Well, uh, beyond the generally veil. Generally, we try. What's that? Uh, I could tell I've, by your I've, response I've, you're beyond the veil. I've I've completed my my Golden Dawn curriculum. Okay, Let's just say that that suffices as an answer. Yeah, nice. Yeah, but are you like are you an eight three or are you a nine two? <laughs> <laughs> I'm an eleven billion over forty two. Awesome. Yeah, me too. So we got the secret handshake going on. Now, if you don't yes. mind my asking, and again, I sometimes I just barrel ahead, and you know, uh, with no no regard for possible uh, boundaries. Have you been hierophant yet? I have, yeah. Excellent. Is there any anything that you uh, might comment on about that experience? Um, only that it was one of the most uh, fulfilling and satisfying experiences of my life, and I wouldn't trade it for anything. Beautiful. Yeah, a neophyte ceremony done right is is one of the most beautiful things for sure. Oh, absolutely. And uh, one of one of the things that I've sort of integrated into my my personal spiritual life is the the prayer that the hierophant gives when he approaches the altar. Mm. Um, my Lord of the Universe, the Vast and the Mighty One, um, grant thy aid unto the to these neophytes who now kneeleth before thee. Uh, grant the nature into the higher aspirations of their soul, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. So I've sort of changed that into Lord of the Universe, the vast and the mighty one, rule of the light and the darkness. Grant thine aid into the higher aspirations of thy servant, uh, who now petitions before thee, and, and so on and so forth. Mm. Yeah, that's very similar to what, what we used to do in the order we came from. Uh, at the end of all of our, you know, uh, we'd do the LBRP, BRH, and then kneel and do something very similar. Oh, yeah. That's beautiful. So I'm going to ask you, you know, and uh, th- this question comes up because I had a recent really funny experience. And, you know, I think that there, even in the most solemn ceremonies, I think that there's this there's this weird tendency afterwards to kind of, you know, as you keep studying and studying something, you kind of make it kind of funny. And I don't know if this is your experience as well. And as an example, uh, I was just thinking of, like, how do you do, like, a, a Brooklyn, Queens, Bronx version of, the neophyte ceremony, you know, what would they sound like? You know, of course, like, you know, your high-risk would be like your mafia guy uh, or like your, your bouncer guy, but like, you know, like what, like what would the other officers kind of be? And we would, you know, but there, there's this like weird inclination I found with other people. And I, I'm glad I didn't, you know, I'm glad I wasn't alone because I would think of like these weird things um, about ceremonies and share them. And, you know, I remember we were talking about, you know, a temple in Atlanta and they had like the hillbilly version of the fair of the is failure. <laughs> so be without fear. Yeah, you know, have like a hee-haw version. But I mean, do, have you experienced this and what do you think that inclination comes from? Um, uh, I understand where you're coming from. I don't know if I've necessarily experienced it, but I think 
Um, you're like you're way they, too devolved for they me. They don't like, joke I'm, around at Thuban. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that the the implication to make serious thing, things silly comes from in part um, once we've advanced enough in in our studies. I think it's important to to take certain things lightly. Mm. Um, one of the things that I learned in doing ayahuasca ceremonies is that after all the emotional work is done while you're sitting in, in the, the medicine is once it's over to just have a good hearty laugh and, and breathe a sigh of relief and not take it too seriously. Yeah. And part well, of, and think... the other thing too, that, oh, ahead, that comes with, with um, trying to make light of those things is we, we all have this need to make unfamiliar things familiar to us. I remember when I first moved to Victoria mm. Victoria doesn't have any any numbers for their their streets and avenues. Everything is named, and the, the roads are all around this way. They don't really run up and down or left or right or anything like that. So when I first got here, it took me a couple of years to go. Oh, this area of Victoria is like this area of Lethbridge, and so on and so forth. So it was a way of familiarizing the unfamiliar. Right. That's an interesting statement because it, it made me think about when kids first start learning about sexual intercourse, it becomes the funniest thing and they're giggling about it constantly. I still think yes. it's funny. Oh, yeah. But but for some reason, like everybody's grandma is so serious about it. You know, maybe these days there's cooler grandmas. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's I mean, and I can go into these ceremonies like really like in a very, very serious place and be very, you know, reverential and whatever, but I, there's this like weird thing where I'm like, when I think about it afterwards, be, you know, my mind goes to those weird places. Yeah. But. Yeah. And I think there's, there's an important lesson there in, you know, it's important to be, to be somber and reverent in, in our rituals and ceremonies, but at the same time, you know, we re- need to remember the, the weighing of, of Osiris that the judgment is, is the, or, or the person that passes on, their heart needs to be as light as a feather. Yeah. And I think that if we take things too seriously, that that can weigh down the heart. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, wow. That's really beautiful. But it's also supposed to be no lighter than the feather. Oh, right. I wonder, I, I've always wondered what that meant, to be no lighter than the feather. Yeah, it means I'm screwed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you have to do just enough sinning, but not too much. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking, of course, the uh, the facetious response would be um, that the reason why we want to joke about these serious things is because of the obscene ones, the Klipoth of Yisod taking over our Ruach, trying to taint and, 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 and make profane that which is sacred. Yeah, you know what's funny? That's like, the standard, that that's the demonstrator response. Yeah. But you kind of have to, like, you have to, I think you have to kind of know... Um, and I, I think there, there's reference to it in some of the rituals where you kind of have to know the the darkness. You kind of have to know, you know, it's sort of like, oh, my God, the, you know, the tunnels have set. Oh, my God, like, stay away, stay away. And, and the reality is it's like you kind of have to, you know, face them and, yeah. and kind of like look into them and say, OK, well, here are the dark parts of me. And, you know, OK, like this is this is the, the, the evil persona. And that's OK. Like that's that's part of me. And I'm going to you know, not let it rule me, but um, I'm going to recognize it as part of me. Yeah, I always looked at it like 
I mean, and you know, and I know this is not everybody's point of view, but my my position is why invoke demons when they're already there? Um, you know, I yeah, I run into my own darkness, I run into my own shadow side, but why actively use the, you know intentionally go into the tunnels of set when I already you know wake up in them sometimes, or I wander down the hall? <laughs> like when if I'm going to take the time to do some ritual work or some prayer work, I'm going to talk to some beings that are higher up than me to use that. Oh, that's no, that's totally cool. I I think that there there's a useful set of exercises where it's more like um if you find yourself sabotaging yourself of like you you you're sabotaging yourself from getting something that you really want yeah some it's usually happening from that lunar sort of like that that Mm. you know that that shadowy part right you're kind of like okay what's going on here and then you can have that conversation yeah and and then you can say then, then at least you kind of know it's not like wow, why am I sabotaging myself? I'm so unhappy because I don't know why that is. And then you can find out, well, maybe there's something, maybe you really don't truly want that or that's not really exactly. your true will and you don't know that's why. That's always the case for me. Like as much as I talk about, like if I, you know, I want to I wanna teach three yoga classes a day and travel around and yeah, well, you know, but later, like like not right now. You know, it's like I don't have any active, you know, private clients at the moment. It's like, oh, really? Why not? It's like, well, because I kind of like my free time. You know, I'm, I'm kind of going through a down, you know, I'm, I'm changing, selling my house and focusing elsewhere. But but yeah, if I were to take a loss that I don't have, you know, all these classes a week, then uh, then I'd be taking a loss for the run. You know, I mean, it's, I'm the one that did it. So, you know, yeah, it's like that awareness, it's like the self-awareness. Yeah. I also think that, um, going back to what you were talking about before about, you know, the silliness and laughter, I think, I think mm-hmm. that, um, aside from being a, a good medicine for us in, in our healing and our work, um, if we don't treat what we do as being too serious, then it helps us protect against that that shadow side of the light, which is intolerance, mm. um, and it, it keeps us humble. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I like that. That's true. So, um, do you have anything coming up on the horizon, uh, magically or or spiritually that um, that you're looking forward to? Do you have any goals, or I mean, you're already you've already um, achieved five six. So, what's next for you? Well, I. I'm actually going back to school in September at the University of Victoria. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been Congratulations. Very you. cool. I've been out of school since 2011, I think. Mm-hmm. I had to take a break because I've been doing school for, I think, six years at that point. Yeah. Um, upgrading with high school because I dropped out when I was a teenager. And then, you know, another couple of years of, of college getting my associate degree in psychology. So I'll be going back to do to pick up my third year in psych and doing a minor in religious studies. Nice. Yeah. Very cool. So yeah, that's the, that's the big milestone coming up for me. Well, I recommend uh, Jung's red book. Yes. Very <laughs> much so. I don't have a copy myself, but I did. It seems like it'd be in line with combining those two interests. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately for me, this, this year of psychology is going to be stats. Ah, you got to get through that. Yeah, stuff. So it's be, yeah. yeah, it's necessary. Dry, but necessary. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being our guest on the Esoteri Nerd podcast today. It was great meeting you. Oh, it was great meeting you guys. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, and uh, all my best to everyone up there in Canada. And uh, we'll we'll talk to you again soon. All right. Have a good day. You too. Bye. Bye bye. Bye.
Okay, and I got to go as well, so I will talk to you later. Okay, have a good one. Thank you yeah, very you much. Too. Thank you. Bye. Thank you, Robin, for being our guest on the Esoteric Nerd podcast today. It was very nice to meet you. As I said before, thank you to Israeli Sesame Street, or Shalom Sesame, technically. To Jonathan Goldman, whose Holy Harmony played briefly in that same segment. To Tatomi Saeki and Alkvin Takewa Ramos, playing Shogunken Reibo the sort of flute music in the background while I was reciting the meditation on Aleph. Special thanks to Archon Protopsaltes Lycurgos Angelopoulos of the Greek Byzantine Choir played in the background while Joe and I were talking as well as the USSR Ministry of Culture Chamber Choir. I like to keep it old school. Briefly, Mishari Rashid Alafasi came on reciting the Quran, but for fuck's sake, don't tell him. Special thanks also to Trent Reznor. As always, thank you to Susumu Ueda and his father and the other monks at Jofuku Inn Temple on Mount Koyasan for the music you're hearing right now as well as to Camille and Kennerly, who played the electric harp, a rendition of the Game of Thrones theme that I use for the intro and outro to all of the interviews. And most importantly, thank you to you, the esoteric nerd, listening to this podcast. If you're a fan of this podcast and you'd like to show your support, I'd like to invite you to visit edward-reeb.com forward slash vhfraterbt. Scroll all the way down to the bottom, and you can donate, or you can click through to the iTunes page and leave a review and a rating. Hopefully somewhere in the high fours, low fives. Thank you all for tuning in. And as the Mormons say, I don't know what the Mormons say, but... May Maroni wake you up in the middle of the night saying creepy, repetitive things. Good night. <laughs>